0: scripture reading from this morning is from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 22. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant.
1: Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our hope is in you and our hope is exceedingly strong. And I pray today that you would help us to understand more with our minds the content of our hope and to feel in our hearts the depth of our hope. Oh Lord, for so many reasons we need to know about this hope that we have in you. So I pray now that you would come, Lord, by the Holy Spirit and by your word and by my weakness and I pray that you would build up your church in the hope we have in you. Glorify your name now, I pray, Jesus. Amen. Last Friday night, Mike and Cheryl Perry and I accompanied Joe and Melissa Polica to the annual fundraising banquet for what used to be called Minnesota Teen Challenge. And now it's called Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge. So they changed their name because they wanted to be clear to the people that they're trying to reach that their services are available to both adults and teens. And what they do as a ministry is they help people overcome a variety of addictions, mainly drug addictions, by introducing them to the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. It's about a 20, 30-year-old ministry, and it's a powerful ministry downtown Minneapolis. So given that, they shared a lot of facts about their ministry, but mainly they had several people come up and share their stories about how they moved from addiction to sobriety through hope in Jesus Christ. And as I sat there listening to these stories, several of them, very powerful stories, I thought to myself that what's really at issue here is not so much overcoming addiction as it is finding a source of hope that will not fade away. It's finding a source of hope that won't be shaken by the ups and downs that are inevitable in life. Most of you know that I, too, was a a drug addict. I started doing drugs at the age of 11, and by the time I was 13, I was a full-blown drug addict. So I understand what many of these people are going through, and I know that underneath the use of drugs is the pursuit of joy and the pursuit of satisfaction in life. And I know from the inside out that underneath that, what really becomes an insane pursuit is the desire for hope in life. It's this need that we all have to know that life is about something, that life is not about nothing. And the problem is when you don't have anything to live for, when you don't see any real point in life, well, what's left except to live for the moment, right? To live for whatever pleasures are there for you. And so by my flesh, and from 13 years old till almost 20 years old, there was really not a pleasure that I denied myself that I could get my hands on. But the main thing here is that I was looking for hope. That's really what was going on really wasn't about drugs it really wasn't about pleasure underneath it was about trying to fill up this massive hole that was in my heart and that's in everybody's heart the problem with pursuing our pleasure and our hope in these kinds of things is what I call the law of diminishing returns the law of diminishing returns works like this what got me high yesterday and gave me pleasure yesterday won't work for today It won't get me high today. It won't give me pleasure today. It won't be enough to get me to where I was. And so in order to chase that original high and get back to where I was, I have to do more of what I did and I have to do it more often. But the problem is, no matter how much I do it and no matter how how often I do it, I can never get back to that original high. I can never get back to that pleasure again. It's elusive. It's like a vapor. It's like trying to nail jello to a wall. You ever tried that? Doesn't work real well. You just can't catch up to it. And so this thing in my life, whatever it is, by the way, it's not just drugs. It could be sensual pleasures, it could be greed, it could be the pursuit of success. It could be a relationship. It could be many things. This thing, whatever it is that's not God, I pursue it and pursue it, and instead of giving me hope, now it's actually starting to give me the opposite of hope. It's destroying my life. The thing that used to give me pleasure is now giving me the very opposite of pleasure, and I find myself in a hole so deep that I don't know how I got in there, and I don't know how to get out. And that's when a ministry like Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge comes along, and essentially what they're dealing in is hope. Overcoming addiction is the thing that helps them connect with people who know that they're in need and who are ready to do whatever it takes to get the help that they need. But again, underneath all of that... They're trying to show these people the path to a hope and a joy that cannot be shaken by anything in life and that cannot be taken away. Yes, this hope will call on us to suffer, will call on us to go through difficult things, but the thing about Jesus is that he uses even the hard things of life to increase our hope. Wrote a little devotional for you in the bulletins this morning, and the basic point that's in that devotional is that the anchor is made for the storm. The anchor is proven in the storm. And so even the storms of life come into the life of a person who has hope in Christ, and these things serve eventually to increase our joy and our hope because they just demonstrate that Christ is stronger than any storm in life. That's what Teen Challenge is really about, and that's what the text before us today is about. Hebrews seven eleven through 22 is about the hope that we have in Christ, it's about a hope that cannot be destroyed or diminished or taken away by anything. By anything. It's a hope about that, that is as sure as the God who gives the hope is sure. Now I will tell you that the details of this text are hard to understand and they're hard to follow at times. And this morning we're going to have to think hard. And if you take this seriously and you study your Bible after this morning, you're going to have to think hard. There's some aspects of understanding this text that only came to me after many hours of study, meditation, prayer. But I'll tell you, some hard work is worth the work. Amen. The hard work of understanding this text, here's what it's gonna do for you. It's going to increase your sense of hope by helping you understand more about the content of your hope. It will heighten your emotional sense of hope by helping you understand just how strong your hope is. So it's worth the work. Imagine that you hire a contractor to build a deck on the back of your house and the deck is done. And now you walk out there on the deck with them and you say, listen, I'm gonna have a bunch of friends over this weekend, maybe 15, 20 people. And I just wanna make sure, are you sure that this deck's gonna be able to hold everybody? Or are we gonna end up on Channel 5 News as that family that everybody fell off the deck and broke their legs? And the contractor, without going into details, you know, all the algebraic and, con- you know, constructions and all that stuff, he tells you enough of the construction details. Some things you don't really understand, but he tells you enough that you know that that deck could hold the weight of more than a thousand people easily. And so that weekend when your friends come over and there's only 10 or 20 of you, you can just relax and enjoy yourself. You don't have to worry if all your friends are going to fall off and get hurt because you have a sense of certainty about the strength of of the deck. And much more importantly, when you come to understand something of the details of how strong your hope is in Christ, you can just relax and enjoy the life that he gave you, even when you have to suffer a little bit. In fact, there's a kind of a joy in the midst of a trial for a believing person that is the strangest joy you can imagine because, Mark, as you prayed this morning, it's a kind of a bittersweet thing. It's bitter because you don't like the suffering, but it's sweet because you know that Jesus provided this for you to show you how strong he is. And so, when you know He is your hope, you know that you know that you know, you can just relax and enjoy the life that God gave you. That's what this text is about today, beloved. It's about the height and depth and strength of the joy that we have in Christ and how I pray that the Lord will help this message infiltrate into our hearts. We'll have to think with our heads, but I'm hoping that this really infiltrates our hearts, that it hits us where we live, because I think that's what the Lord has intended. So, With that, please look with me at Hebrews chapter 7. I want to just start with verse 11. I'm actually going to spend quite a bit of time on this verse today. You know, I want to pause here just for a second. I hadn't planned to say this, but I want to say in my preparation process for this week, I got stuck on verse 11, and I could not get my mind to think past verse 11 And it was driving me nuts because I kept saying to the Lord, Lord, i got 11, 12 verses to deal with this week. And if I spend 90% of my time on this one verse, I'm not going to be ready for Sunday. And it's really good for the preacher to show up ready to preach on Sunday, right? But there also was this joy in my heart knowing that God was in control. And sure enough, what he finally ended up showing me in verse 11 to me became the key for this whole passage and I just say that as a sort of sub-sermon this morning, just to trust the Lord. Something's happening in your life that you feel like is frustrating your plans, just pay attention, because maybe, maybe the Lord has another plan. Maybe he's got something really good in mind for you. So chapter seven, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Belchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now, I'll just bet that you were thinking about that this morning, weren't you? For being honest, this isn't the kind of thing that we wake up thinking about or the thing that we go to sleep thinking about, but I hope that we'll soon see that the nature of the Levitical priesthood and Jesus' priesthood is incredibly powerful and relevant for everything that's happening in our lives because it has to do with our hope in Christ. Some of you will probably remember that the author referred to Melchizedek by inference in chapter 1 because he he quoted Psalm 110 two times. And then you'll remember in chapter 5 the author uh, named him twice. He called him by name by quoting Psalm 110 again two times. And then here in chapter 7, the author goes on to explain that this Melchizedek, as mysterious as he is, was the king and priest of a place called Salem, which was most likely Jerusalem. And this man was greater than Abraham, which is saying a lot. And he was greater than Levi in the priesthood that came out of Levi, which is saying a lot. And therefore, this man was a fitting foreshadow for Jesus Christ. He was not a manifestation of Jesus Christ. He was just a man. But he was a fitting foreshadow of Jesus Christ that the Lord would later come to fulfill. That was last week's message. Now in chapter 7, verses 11 through 22, the author shows how and why Jesus became a priest in the order of Melchizedek and why this is such great news for everyone who believes in Christ over time. And the first step he takes is to show that the reason Jesus had to become a priest at all, especially in the order of Melchizedek, is because perfection was not attainable through the only other option that existed on the face of the earth, namely the Levitical priesthood. At this time of history, there was one way to get to God, and that was through the Levitical sacrificial system, That system was traced back to Aaron, the brother of Moses, and it had existed for a little over 1,300 years by the time the letter of Hebrews was written. And yet after 13 centuries of time, it had not produced perfection in the priest, in the sacrifices, or in the people. And according to the author of Hebrews, this system was not going to produce perfection ever. It wasn't going to happen, so where was the hope? This is the question he's wanting to fill the hearts of the readers. If if not this way, then where is the hope? And why is it that there was no hope in the Levitical priesthood? After all, God gave this priesthood to the people, so why is there no hope through it? Well, let me begin to answer by saying a few things about this word perfection. Why was it that perfection was not attainable? Some of you will remember that when we were in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 5, we talked about this idea that Jesus was perfected. And you may remember struggling together because Jesus is, is sinless. Jesus is God. Jesus is infinitely holy and there's no flaw at all in him. So what could it possibly mean to say that Jesus is being perfected? That makes it sound like there was flaws in him and and those flaws had to be worked out until he came to a perfect spot. And since he's already perfect, what in the world could it mean to say that he was perfected? Well, I taught you back then that the Greek word translated perfected in those chapters and in this chapter is used in the Greek Old Testament to refer to the ordination of priests. This happens mainly in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8. And when you look at Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8 and you see the words ordain or ordained or what have you or ordination, behind that English word is this Greek word perfected. The priests were being perfected. The priests were being ordained. The priests were going through a process that was preparing them to be fit to be in the presence of a holy God. You don't just waltz into the presence of God. You must be invited, you must be prepared, and so the Hebrew mind thought of the process of ordination as the process of perfection. When you look up all of the occurrences of this word in the Greek Old Testament, and there's quite a few of them, only about two or three of them refer to something other than the priests. So there's this great body of usages of this word, Here it shows up in Hebrews. You look back to the Old Testament and almost every time it's used, it's talking about the priests. So I come back to Hebrews and I conclude that the author who knew the Old Testament extremely well mainly has the priests in mind when he says this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, you just have to hear that like this. If ordination... Had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, under that order, under that ordination, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So the author is saying if the Levitical priesthood had been able to produce a perfect priest, one who is perfectly fit to stand in the presence of God and offer a perfect sacrifice to God so that the people could come into the presence of God with Him, if that was doable through the Levitical priesthood, why in the world would there be a need for another priest to arise from another order? That's a humongously important question. And the first thing we need to understand here then is that the author is talking about the perfection of the priests in the presence of God because those priests served as mediators between God and man. Let me put it to you this way. When the mediator is flawed, you cannot get to God. As they said in my seminary days, that'll preach right there. This is the truth. When the mediator is flawed, you cannot get to God. We need a mediator, beloved. We have sinned against the Father. His wrath is upon us because of our sin, and the only way to get from where we are to where God is is for there to be a mediator between God and man. And if the mediator, if the priest is flawed, there is no way to get to God. You have to understand the importance of this question. Since there was no perfection through the Levitical priesthood, then something else had to happen. And this leads to the next thing we have to understand. This question of the flaw in the Levitical priesthood would have come up in the mind of any thinking Jew, even if Jesus Christ had not come, because David wrote Psalm 110. Now I told you last week that besides Hebrews, Melchizedek is only mentioned in two places in the Bible. Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110. Last week we looked at Genesis 14, this week I want to look with you at Psalm 110, so will you please turn there with me now. Not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want us to see what David wrote, and since it's a a short psalm, I'm going to read the whole, whole thing here, and try to help us understand what's going on. Psalm 110. This is, and I believe this to be true, by the way, I've done a lot of study about this, and I do believe this is a psalm of David. David wrote this. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, not Levi. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So let's think about David in this psalm a little bit. David was king of Israel, right? Get this in our head. And he's ruling in Jerusalem. As the king of Israel... David was required by Deuteronomy chapter 17 to make a copy of the Mosaic law for himself, and he was required to read that law every day of his life. Day and night, he was supposed to meditate on that law. That would have been good for every person in Israel, but it was required for the king by Deuteronomy chapter 17. And so as I meditate through this whole thing with Melchizedek in Psalm 110, I imagine that one day, David, while reading Genesis 14, became really curious about this mysterious man named Melchizedek. And I think that in the days that followed, David read and prayed and meditated on this man and on this text. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he began to put some things together. Let me tell you four insights that I think had to be necessary for David to see in order for him to write Psalm 110. First of all, David noticed that Melchizedek ruled over Salem and David knew that that meant Jerusalem and the thing is that David at the moment he realizes that is reigning in Jerusalem as the king so just put yourself in his shoes for a second when you and I read Genesis 14 we read about Melchizedek we move on he's the king of Salem that's nice on we go David reads this guy is the king of Salem and David is now the king of the city where this guy was the king So it hits him. He identifies with Melchizedek. He was king here. I am king here. I need to think about this guy. And there's only three verses. Probably took him many, many days. So first thing he notices, he's king over the very city that I'm king over right now. There's an emotional connection. I I can just imagine the Holy Spirit has his attention. Second thing. David can't help but notice that this Melchizedek is both the king of Salem and he is the high priest of Salem, the high priest of the Most High God. And he can't help but notice this because the very book that teaches him about Melchizedek also forbids David from being the king and the priest. It strictly forbids him. You may not be the king and the priest. You, David, can only be the king. And now David is reading about this king of Salem who was also the high priest, and David's going, wow, this is unusual. What's going on here? And there's, a, there's another layer of this for David, an emotional layer, a very significant layer. Who was the king that was king before David? Somebody say it. King Saul, right? What was it that got King Saul kicked off the throne? I'll tell you what it was. He tried to be the king and the priest of Israel. He was strictly forbidden from being a priest, and yet in his arrogance, he thought, well, the priest is delayed, I'll just do his job too. And he offered sacrifices, and that evil act got him ousted from the throne and put David onto the throne. Beloved, you've got to feel the power of what David felt when he thought about Melchizedek. The reason David was king is because his predecessor was kicked off the throne for being king and priest, for trying to be. And now he reads about Melchizedek, who was the king and the priest of the city that he's dwelling in, that he's reigning over. And David's just, I could imagine if I was in his shoes, I'd probably have lost sleep over this. I would probably have thought, what in the world is this all about? I got to understand In fact, something very like that happened to me this week with Leviticus 7 or Hebrews 7.11. I just couldn't get it off my mind. And I can imagine with David, he just was captured by this. He's got to understand how this could be. So the third thing comes. David observes that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and took tithes from Abraham and through a process of prayer and meditation he sees that Abraham is the father of Israel and the great patriarch upon whom all of the promises of God rest. And if this man comes as king and priest and blesses Abraham, this man must actually be greater than Abraham. And I think in David's mind, he begins musing and thinking, oh Lord, that must mean then that the priesthood of Melchizedek is more powerful than the priesthood that came after Melchizedek. I can imagine that David begins to wonder about what is most ultimate and what God is doing in history and how all this makes sense because he's reigning in Jerusalem and out of his window, he can look down and see the temple where the Levitical priests, numbering 24,000 or more, are doing their work day by day by day. And David is looking at it all and saying there's something greater than all of this. Number four then, David meditates on the scripture in light of the fact that he is the king of Israel, and in light of this priesthood, that like I said, he looks out from his terrace and he watches them day by day. And you have to understand, David organized this priesthood in such a significant way that his organizational structure lasted until after the time of Jesus. The organization that David gave to the priests lasted for 1,000 years, until 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, all right? David had a knowledge of the priesthood. You can read about this in the Chronicles, by the way. It tells you all the details of how he organized the the priesthood. But now he sits there reflecting on himself. He reflects on the priesthood and he notices that there are deep flaws in his predecessors. There's deep flaws in him. There's going to be deep flaws in every king that comes after him. There was flaws in Aaron, there was flaws in Eleazar, there was flaws in Phineas, there are flaws in every single high priest that had come since the days of Moses. There were going to be flaws in his day, and later in the, in the story we see great flaws in the priests of his day, Abiathar and Ahimelech and Zadok, and, and there were going to be deep flaws in every high priest after them, and David knew it. David's looking at this system over which he has power and he realizes that it is deeply flawed and it's begging for something more. He knows that if the mediator is flawed, there's no way to get to God. And so there must be something more. And I believe with all of this stirring in the heart of the king, he's moved by the Holy Spirit and he takes his pen and he writes Psalm One. 10. It's a short song. It came at a time when the kingship of Israel was at its utter heights. It came at a time when the priesthood of Israel was at its utter height, and yet like the author of Hebrews, David looked at it and saw that it was fatally flawed and that something better had to come along. And so imagine, beloved, he writes down this song. He teaches it to the priests who then teach it to the people of Israel and the people of Israel sing Psalm 110 at church for a thousand years and then Jesus comes. It's amazing. Want us to understand the flow of history because God is sovereign over the flow of history and he's working through the flow of history. So first, Melchizedek lives as a man, a king and a priest in the times of Abraham. 1000 years later king david is looking back and reflecting on this man through genesis 14:17 through 20 and david sees a vision of the messiah i don't know how much detail he saw but i am convinced that he saw something of jesus and he wrote down psalm 110 as a prophecy of the one who would come as the great king priest who would be perfect who would be the perfect mediator between God and man and replace the Levitical priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. Israel sings that song for a 1,000 years, and after 10 centuries, Jesus Christ comes in fulfillment of the prophecy. The author of Hebrews, beloved, is trying to help us see what God has done, and he's trying to evoke in our hearts a sense of awe and a sense of worship. If you hear nothing else today, hear this, that God is in total control of history. Nothing is happening today that God is not in absolute and total control of, and he will cause all of it to work together for his purposes. He has always done this, and he will always do this. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars and corruptions and all these things, don't be worried, just have faith. Jesus is in total control. Now let's go back to Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 is essentially asking this question. If the Levitical priesthood could have produced a perfect priest, why in the world then did David write Psalm 110? Why did another priest need to arise after the order of Melchizedek? This question is a very big question because look at verse 12 there. The author points out, and the Jewish readers that were hearing him knew very well, That if there was a change in the priesthood away from Levi, it implied a total change in the law as well, because the priesthood and the law are married. So, hear this as if you were a Jew. If the Levitical priesthood is set aside, not just one priest, but the entire priesthood, if that is set aside, then the whole law of Moses that your people have lived by for almost 1,500 years is also set aside. That's big time. That's big time. And the author of Hebrews needed to help the people see that the setting aside of the law of Moses was in the mind of God and in the the plan of God from the very, very, very beginning. Now, to make this point even stronger about the connection between the priesthood and the law, look as the author continues in verse 13, that the one about whom Psalm 110 is written, namely Jesus Christ... He came from a tribe that never served at the altar and about which Moses never wrote anything about priests. Moses never allowed the tribe of Judah to be priests. It was strictly forbidden. And yet Jesus arose from the tribe of Judah, which means the tribe of praise. He arose from the tribe of the kings. He arose from the tribe of King David. And he serves as a priest. This is neither meant to disrespect nor cast reproach on the Levites, but it is evidence that something radical has changed. Not only has the priesthood been set aside, but the entire law of Moses has been set aside because Jesus has come in fulfillment of Psalm 110. So again, you have to feel this from the perspective of a Jew and realize that the author is saying that the radical shift in the priesthood was not heresy, It was the fulfillment of a prophecy. The radical shift away from the priesthood and away from the law of Moses was not heresy. It was not a cult. It was the fulfillment of prophecy that was in the very scriptures that the Jews cherished and the songs that they sang from day to day for thousands and thousands of years. And so when Jesus came, he came not in the likeness of Aaron, but in the likeness of Melchizedek. Now, I know this church well enough to know that there are some of you that pay close attention to what I say, because I get your emails and your notes and all this stuff. Some of you are saying, wait a second, last week you told us that Melchizedek was made in the likeness of Jesus, that Jesus was not made in the likeness of Melchizedek, but yet here in Hebrews 7, a little later down, it's saying that Jesus came in the likeness of Melchizedek. So what up with that, right? Well, my eloquent friends, I'll share the details with you after the service if you're interested, but the bottom line is this. In Greek, there are two different words used in verse three and then in verse 15. In verse three, it says in the ESV at least that, that Melchizedek resembled the Son of God. That literally means that he was made in the image of the Son of God. Melchizedek was made in the image of the Son, but in verse 15 it says that Jesus came in the likeness of Melchizedek, which is a different word that simply means in the pattern of Melchizedek. So in verse 3, Melchizedek is made in the likeness of Christ. Jesus comes in verse 15 as the fulfillment of a pattern. So what I said last week still stands. Jesus comes first. Melchizedek is just a man And he is made in the likeness of the Son to be a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. A thousand years later, Jesus comes and walks on this earth as a fulfillment of that foreshadow, as a fulfillment of the prophecy that was made about him in Psalm 110. Jesus came to be the great king priest that David had seen in study and prayer and meditation as he reflected on Genesis 14 and wrote Psalm 110. And you'll see there as Hebrews progresses that Jesus became a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement of the law of Moses. In other words, he did not become a priest by the bodily descent of the Levites. It's not as though it was said that Jesus is just like the next one who was born in this line and therefore that makes him the priest. But he came to be a priest in a completely different way. Jesus came to be the priest by the power of an indestructible life. That's such a powerful saying right there. That's where the root of our hope is found, right there. Christ became a priest forever by the power of his indestructible life. Formerly, priests became priests on the basis of who they were related to. Jesus became a priest on the basis of who he is. Jesus became a priest on the basis of his own character, of his own being. Jesus is the authority of his own priesthood. He is the foundation, he is the fulfillment of his own priesthood. And he can never be corrupted, he can never be destroyed. And so he will serve as a priest forever. Unlike the Levitical priests, he is perfectly perfect. He is perfectly ordained, and therefore he makes everything perfect in his own time and his own way. It can neither be corrupted nor destroyed. Satan tried both tactics. You remember about the corruption piece. Satan tempted him more fiercely than he has tempted anyone ever in the history of the world, right? You remember this in the 40 days of temptation in the beginning, and then at Easter this year, we talked about Gethsemane. And Satan came upon Jesus with such a power that you can't even imagine. But all of that temptation did not serve to corrupt Christ. In fact, it did exactly the opposite. It made him a better high priest. The Bible says that it made Jesus a more perfect high priest in the sense that it made him sympathetic because he knows what it's like to endure all the temptations of this life. And because he was incorruptible, he remained as the high priest, the great king priest that came in fulfillment of Psalm 110. Satan's plans did not succeed. They backfired on him. So Satan says, let's try a different tactic. Let's kill him. Satan and his minions and the powers of this world, even the religious leaders of the Jews, all conferred together to kill Jesus, and they succeeded. But no, not so quick. Jesus doesn't take kindly to death. Amen? He doesn't like the smell of graves. He's a little claustrophobic in there. And so three days later, by the power of his own being... He raised up from death and he walked out of that grave and he lived on that day and he lives this day and he will live forever and ever. His life is incorruptible. His life is indestructible and therefore he will serve as our great king priest forever and ever and ever. Beloved, do you see how deep a hope you have in Christ? Do you see how strong a hope your anchor is in Christ Do you see how immovable and unshakable your life is when your hope is rooted in Jesus? The winds will blow and the waves will crash upon your life and you will suffer many things. But as I said earlier, these things will only serve to prove for you that Christ is immovable because an anchor is proved inside the storm. And your great King Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, will get you through it all. I pray to God, That you will see the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the hope that you have in Christ Jesus today. As for the Levitical priesthood, look in verses 18 and 19. It had to be completely set aside. It couldn't be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It had to be one or the other. And it was set aside because the scripture says that it was weak and useless at the end of verse 18. Weak and useless. I'll show you in two weeks that the reason it was weak and useless is because the priests were weak and useless. So the flaw was not in the law itself. The flaw was in the priests. But whatever the ultimate reason, the bottom line is that the former system did not work to produce permanent salvation for people and access to the presence of God. And so, verse 19, Jesus came to bring us a better hope by which we can actually draw near to God. In other words, the hope in Christ works. Since the mediator is not flawed, there is a way to God, beloved. Since Jesus, our mediator, is not flawed, there is a way to get to God. And that's through Jesus Christ. It worked. It worked. And it's not as though the Lord had to do this because he and Jesus as the Father and the Son have such a deep and intimate relationship. But for the sake of us all, God the Father, through the Holy Spirit and through the pen of David, wrote these words to Jesus with an oath. You are a priest forever. Repeat it again in verse 4 of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn, Yahweh has sworn, the Father has sworn, and He will never, ever change His mind. You, Lord Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are the great king-priest who came to provide a perfect way to God and a perfect hope for all who would believe in God This is the hope that we have, beloved. It's secured by the promise of God and the oath of God. And both things are unbreakable. And I hope with all of my heart that you see and feel the hope that you have in Christ. This is the power of an indestructible life. If the life of Christ is indestructible, then the hope we have in Christ is also indestructible. Nothing can take it away. The world can malign us. The world can tempt us, and they do. The world can cause us to stumble, and they will. The world can persecute us, and they will. And I think in the coming days in America, those who will cling to Christ are going to suffer fairly severe persecution of all sorts. They can even kill our bodies, and for some of us, they will. And around the world right now, some of our brothers and sisters are even being killed in the name of Jesus, right even as we speak. This very morning, I promise you, some circle of Christians got caught in a cave or a basement worshiping Jesus Christ, and they're going to pay with their lives today. This is reality. But you know what they cannot take away? is the hope that we have in our great King Priest because they cannot kill Him, they cannot kill our hope. Nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth can shake the hope we have in Christ because nothing can shake Christ Himself. Beloved, that's what Hebrews seven eleven through 22 is about. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant that can never, ever, ever be removed. Romans 8 says, For I am sure certain to the depth of my soul that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, nothing that will come into my life today or any other day, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, that great one, that glorious one who came to serve as our king priest forever and ever. Beloved, this is the power of an indestructible life. And I pray that you will take the time to meditate on this text and let the Lord root and ground your hope in Him because it's very strong. And I want to encourage you as I close that as you do come more and more to feel the force of the hope that is in you, that you would also gain this passion to be an ambassador of hope in your world and share the hope you have with others. Just like those people we saw at Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge on Friday, our world is filled with people who are desperate for hope. And we have this hope lying inside of us that cannot be broken. And I pray with all my heart that we would receive it and feel it and take joy in it and then have a passion to spread it everywhere we go. And I pray that God will give us the power to do that. So let me pray now and then we will sing. Father, I thank you for... Who you are and for what you have done in history. I thank you for what you did in Melchizedek, what you did in David, what you did in Jesus, what you did in the author of Hebrews, what you have done through this book for centuries upon centuries now. I thank you for what you're doing in the life of glory of Christ as you root and ground our hope in the deepest soil in the universe. I thank You for the joy that will be ours as we continue to gain insight into the things that we talked about today, as we continue to feel the force of the indestructible life of Jesus Christ that hovers over everybody who believes. And I thank You, Lord, that as we feel that hope, You will also give us power to be ambassadors of hope in this world. And I pray that You would send us out today. Lord, we're about to sing and worship You and thanks to You. And then I pray that by the authority and power and grace of Jesus, you would fling us into this world as ambassadors of hope. And I thank you for what you'll do. In the mighty and merciful name of our great King and Priest, I pray. Amen.